0: Hello, GabFest listeners. I have a very exciting announcement. I'm coming to you live from the streets of New York City because we're going to be coming to you live on June 29th. You can join me, Emily, and David at Sixth and I in Washington, D.C. Not the streets of New York, but Washington, D.C. Slate Plus members will get an exclusive discount. So, if you're a Slate Plus member, you're golden. If you're not a Slate Plus member yet, what a great time to join! We're also doing a special cocktail hour for a limited number of guests, so go to slate.com slash gabfest right now to get your tickets. They're first-come, first-served, and while there are unlimited virtual tickets, there's a limited number of in-person, not-virtual, be-with-us-together tickets. We can't wait to see you on the 29th at 7.30 Eastern Time at 6 I 9, Washington, D.C. See you then!
1: Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest. For June 16th, 2022, it's the Drunk as Rudy Giuliani edition. I'm David Plotz of CityCast. I'm in Washington, D.C., not yet as drunk as Rudy Giuliani. I'm joined, of course, by John Dickerson of CBS's Sunday Morning from New York City. Hello, John.
0: Hello, David. I'm not in New York City. I'm in Washington, D.C. Let me paint the picture. It's so muggy outside that the window of the hotel is almost completely fogged as the air conditioning, the window, and the outside air compete for
1: supremacy. Why aren't we seeing each other? I didn't even know you were in D.C.
0: I know. It's a good point. Well, I have, you know, the hearings, and uh, and then I uh, happen to be accompanied by my uh, lovely wife, and so I've been spending some time uh, with her.
2: Can't compete, David.
1: No way. No one can compete with Ann Dickerson. That was Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School from, I hope, New Haven, Connecticut. I hope not Washington D.C. That would be weird. No,
2: I'm not in Washington (laughs) D.C. Yes,
1: we're all sitting outside your door. (laughs) On this week's show, what the January 6th Commission has revealed and what that means for the country. Then we will talk to the former chair of the Council of Economic Advisors, Jason Furman, about the economy, the Fed, inflation, and the crypto crash. Then Emily's fascinating article about the fight over gender therapy for trans kids. We will discuss it with Emily herself. Plus, of course, we'll have cocktail chatter. And speaking of Washington, D.C. and gathering in Washington, D.C., a reminder that on June 29th, less than two weeks away, we will be live for our first show in more than two years at Sixth and I Historic Synagogue here in Washington, D.C., first live Gab Fest on Wednesday, June 29th. You can get tickets at slate.com slash GabFest live, slate.com slash GabFest live. There's still tickets. You can also stream this show if you would like to stream it live. Um, And you can get tickets for that as well at slate.com slash GabFest live. Please come GabFest live. Please come and join us. It's going to be a really fun evening. Please join us there on June 29th. It's going to be a time of fellowship.
3: This
2: podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud
0: investment costs going up and you don't know why?
1: The hearing it had scheduled for Wednesday, but it's slated to hold its third hearing Thursday afternoon after we tape, probably also before you have heard this. John will be there. This comes after two blockbuster televised hearings, a Thursday night hearing last week that detailed the violence of the insurrectionists and the planning by the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers, among others, to do real violence. The second detailing how definitively and certainly and repeatedly Trump's team knew that they had lost the election, told them they had lost the election and yet failed to prevent him from ginning up the big lie. Also comes news today that John Eastman, the shady lawyer at the center of a lot of Trump legal chicanery, may have been getting fed inside dope about Supreme Court discussions plausibly from Ginny Thomas. Ginny Thomas, who is the center of all. I'm going to put on my John Dickerson cap here for a second my John Dickerson fedora it's a
0: chapeau
1: you think of hearings as having multiple purposes this this hearing it could be to record what happened for history so that we are simply documenting this threat to the country and and the world has that on on notice it has a record for it the second would be to to reach a TV reading and listening audience so that they hold officials to account. That is another reason, a more immediate reason. There could be a reason which is really to build up a legal case, which is even separate from reaching the TV audience just to present the evidence so that the potential prosecutors can can have the evidence to array against those, uh, those accused of potential crimes. And then finally, to gin up voter enthusiasm and influence voters for a potential election or for potential political gain. So, John, how are they doing on each of those four counts? And am I missing an important other thing that they're doing?
0: I would add one other thing, which is that in a rules-based society, in a government that's formed around the ideas, uh, the idea of peaceful resolution of claims... That is based on an idea that everybody has to salute. And that that idea loses its value if people just blow it off. That's what this is. The idea that it, you elections are the peaceful resolution of competing claims. And when you lose an election, you can't just say, no, I won. And by power and force, I'm going to stay in power. Um, because if you do that, the idea that you can peacefully resolve competing claims is ruined. It's all it's done. And that's at the center of the ongoing question of, of American democracy. And even if you don't control the mob, and you don't control the presidency, there are other ways in which you can undermine uh, the system, which is all of the behaviors and habits that President Trump employed and that are being employed by his party in response to the hearings, which is to claim things that are true that aren't true. It's a real time examination and opportunity for everybody to sign up and say we believe in these things that have been a part of democracy. And implicitly, if you don't stand up and say this is wrong, you can't just decide an outcome when you lose, then you're implicitly embracing the undermining of democracy. I think the committee is doing a A good job because what they've done is they've teed up all of these members of the Trump administration. There was rare unanimity in the Trump administration after the election that the election was not stolen. It's hard to get the Trump administration to agree on anything, but it turns out they agreed on the fact that the election wasn't stolen. It's just President Trump didn't uh, didn't want to believe it or uh, had another plan in mind. But I I thought the use of voices from inside the president's campaign has been effective. Uh, in trying to convince an audience that isn't already convinced that he was uh,
1: willfully destroying democracy to stay in power. Emily, what moments from the first set of hearings, first two sets of hearings have really stood out to you?
2: I mean, I thought Bill Barr's testimony was uh, pretty riveting. And I think generally, one thing I've noticed is that you have these lawyers, there's a White House lawyer, other Trump administration lawyer, I'm thinking of Alex Cannon um, in that second role, and then Barr, and it's like they reached the limit of their partisan selves, right? They wanted Trump to win. I mean, this is even true about Trump's campaign manager, Bill Stepien. They were going to fight like hell for him to win. If there was an opening, they would have taken it, but there wasn't. And in the end, the rule of law for their values mattered to them. And so they weren't willing to go along with what seemed to them like a just delusional scheme. I mean, it is a lot to remember how quiet they were as this was all unfolding. They didn't give us any clue that they all felt this way. I mean, Barr resigned, but he didn't speak out in any way. It could have made a real difference to how the country absorbed all of Trump's flailing, um, if we had known that they all held these views. Um, And so that seems like a real act of cowardice. But as they're coming forward now, I mean, to me, it seems like that's important to get on the record for the reasons John said. What's harder is whether, you know, you think there should be a higher bar for the committee to clear, namely that there are real political consequences for Trump, that the party, his party distances itself from him, that he loses power or that he gets charged criminally. And I am not sure how I feel about the second one. I mean, it's so complicated, or just there are so many different considerations. There's whether he actually broke the law, whether we should ever charge a former president, um, all of those things. And then this question of him losing political power just still seems pretty unlikely to me.
0: Well, not only that, he he, he has gained political power since January 6th. I mean, he's the... He's the likely nominee of the party at the moment, and he's the most powerful person in the party. He's continuing to sell the lie, not just publicly, but to raise money, which the committee also pointed out was a total grift that the money raised for his quote-unquote defense fund is going to all kinds of things other than his defense. Um, And there are 100, the Washington Post did an analysis, 100 Republicans who won in primaries who believe uh, this lie that even Trump's most inside people. And as you mentioned, Emily, it's the lawyers, including Eric Hirschman, who was one of his defense lawyers in the first impeachment. I mean, these are, you couldn't be any more on Team Trump. And yet his White House lawyers, multiple ones, his vice president, his vice president's staff, the Department of Justice, um, they all, his attorney general, they all said, campaign manager,
1: they all said there was nothing there. On the prosecution question, it's really interesting because there is this notion that it's obviously gonna be incredibly it would be incredibly hard to prosecute trump and he was impeached twice and not convicted and and it's difficult to imagine there's a jury of 12 people in this country that you could you could find (laughs) that would convict i don't know maybe that's not true uh i suppose if you pick them in the in the right way you might find it but it's pretty clear that he he did not honestly believe that he had won. It is not credible for him to say that he honestly believed that he won. Now, it, it, he will undoubtedly say that, and he, he acts like he believes it. But when you are presented with endless evidence that the world is round, and the world is round, and the world is round, and you just decline to say it, and you're like, I just really believe the world is flat. I just That's just what I believe. It is not It is not credible for you to say that. And therefore, his state of mind about whether he was corruptly influencing an official proceeding uh, is not really relevant. It does seem pretty clear that he has committed a crime, and not just a crime, like almost the highest crime that can be committed in this country. And the idea that he can't be prosecuted for that, I'm somebody who's very, you know, I'm, I'm not like a legalistic person. I don't really want a lot of people prosecuted for a lot of things, um, but it is, really problematic that that we certainly won't get him to have political consequences, but also that the Justice Department may decide this is not a winnable case and therefore not a bringable case.
0: Emily, building on what
1: David said,
0: is if if the defense is, oh, well, you know, he wasn't willfully doing this. He was just delusional. Do you do you support the delusional case by maintaining the delusion? Even like you have to maintain the delusion for the rest of your life in order to create the doubt that you weren't willfully destroying democracy just to stay in power.
2: I mean, I don't know how hard that would be for Trump to do because he is, you know, if you buy into this idea that he really believed the election was stolen, he's willing to continue perpetuating that, right? You know, for white collar cases, this comes up all the time because you have to prove a certain level of what's called mens rea, state of mind, in order to get a conviction. And rarely do you have a smoking gun in which someone admits like, oh, yes, I knew I was defrauding the company and bilking them of millions of dollars. And so there's a concept in the law called willful blindness, which is like if there's all kinds of evidence that you should have known and were blinding yourself to the facts, that's not a defense. And I thought when I was listening to Bill Barr in particular that I was absolutely hearing proof for that.
1: Right. Bill Barr called it bullshit. He literally said it was bullshit.
0: I told him that the stuff that his people were shuttling out to the public were, was bullshit. I mean, that the claims of fraud were bullshit. And, uh, you know, he was indignant about that. And um, I reiterated that they'd wasted a whole month on these claims
1: on the Dominion voting machines, and they were idiotic claims.
0: And I think one of the important things that comes out of the hearing that, that I think they could make a, make clear is these are called the January 6th hearings. But really, this was not about one day. This was about a 78-day effort on the president to try every possible door. You know, if he's a burglar trying to break into the house, he didn't just try some kind of fancy way to break in the front door. He tried the front door. He tried all the windows on the first level. He got a ladder and tried all the second windows. He tried to climb in through the mail slot. He was trying every possible way to do this over the course of 78 uh days you know in addition to being willfully blind he was also actively searching for any barista at the local starbucks who could give him a new possible way to take back the election
1: so it is pretty clear to me that it is uh not just to me that it is entirely likely that we're going to have another trump presidency that in january 2025 there. May well be a a President Trump returning to the presidency. There's this really interesting piece by Michael Dorf that we we read, uh, where you he talked about the difference between the the sort of the collaborators, the collaborators, patriots, and scoundrels, and people like Rudy Giuliani, clearly a scoundrel, like stuck with this, pushed all these lies, terrible. Um, the patriots are the people who stood up to Trump and rejected Trump from. At various points, including, I would say, like Mike Pence, at, at a moment of extreme duress, Mike Pence did something extremely patriotic and brave. And I hope I hope history remembers that history should also remember all the terrible things he did. But that was that was no joke. What Mike Pence did,
2: though, so he really had no choice. But well, continue. but, but he, he had no did, choice.
1: But it, like it's it, it is incredibly hard. Like the Brad Raffensperger, it, it, when you were under so much pressure from your own people to do something that is that so breaks the social bonds with the people you care most about with the people who've supported you most with the the source of your income the source of your fame the source of your success and to willfully reject it in a high profile way knowing there could be terrible consequences for it that is that's really really brave and i know mike pence was not brave on every moment but that was that matter
0: and i also think the idea you have no choice, you do have a choice in this weird world, which is just make up something that isn't true. And instead of being out in the cold naked, believing something that's delusional, you'll get a whole team that will come give you a warm blanket and tell you it's all just fine. So there actually was a choice in this wacky world.
1: I just worry that they're going into 20, potential 2025. There are not enough. There's certainly are not enough patriots left. And there might not be enough collaborators left to run a government that doesn't do the worst things. Just to close this out, there are going to be six or maybe seven hearings the January 6th commission is going to do and that are going to be televised. I suspect we're all jaded and kind of worn down enough to know that it's not going to change the fundamental political dynamics of this country. There's no chance of it. And I personally was just very depressed and sobered by a David Brooks column just saying that, it's not that this stuff doesn't matter exactly. It's important to record it for history, but that we have a future which looks to be a civil war. We have all the conditions for political violence developing around us. We have lost trust in institutions. There are uh, just the the, the, the elements that that are going to combust are all in place. And there's nothing that the January 6th commission is doing that is likely to fundamentally change that dynamic. And there's nothing, in fact, at all happening in the country that's likely to fundamentally change that dynamic. And it's it's so depressing to me.
0: But the way out of that depression, which is a founded one, is if you, is, I think, to do what, what Brooks suggested, which is to see this threat as a present one. This isn't some story about Donald Trump. This is a story about, and I'm not saying this, this is the only, I think, It may not work, but is that this is a story that results from a series of habits. And those habits are still intact. And they are, in fact, more virulent among these hundred Republicans who were elected believing in something that isn't true or pushing something we know not to be true. And if you keep a light on the fact that people who don't believe in the basic democratic principle of the will of the people and you keep in mind that this is still a live threat for the various reasons we've talked about, that at least makes it something that's clear and present in the moment, rather than just, oh, this is another examination of of Donald Trump's greatest idiosyncrasy that happened on a single day, and can't we move on?
1: Slate.com slash GabFest Plus. Yes, that's the URL you need to go to to become a Slate Plus member. Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the GabFest And you get member-exclusive episodes on shows like Slow Burn and Amicus. And you get no ads on any of our podcasts. And you get early access to tickets for things like our Slate GapFest live show. Uh, So slate.com slash GapFest Plus. Go check it out today. And today we're going to talk about what we're going to read and watch this summer. We're going to welcome summer with our reading and watching lists.
2: We also have a special announcement about an upcoming Slate live event. If you want to get up to date on everything happening with the Supreme Court right now, come to the Bell House in Brooklyn, New York on Thursday, June 23rd. I'll be there along with our colleagues from Slate and we'll be unpacking all the news and we'll also be doing a special live slow burn taping. Head to slate.com slash supreme to get your tickets now.
1: This episode of The Gap Fest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy to use app, you can keep on updating Your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame. And I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GabFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GabFest at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. The Fed on Wednesday raised its core interest rate three-quarters of a point in an effort to choke off, to stifle inflation, which continues at a rate of more than 8%. It's the biggest rate hike since 1994, I think. And we're at what feels like an amazingly complex economic moment. We have inflation surging because of continued supply chain disruptions, because of geopolitical disruptions, because of consumer demand, uh, general enthusiastic consumer demand. The Biden administration seems to be planning to lift various tariffs. Unemployment is still low. The stock market is in bear market territory, and most delightedly for bad people like me, the crypto economy is crashing. So we're glad to be joined by Jason Furman, Gabfest uh, irregular, I suppose, professor at Harvard and former chair of the Council of Economic Advisors under President Obama. So Jason, all these various things are happening all at once. What? What uh, is the one thing that we really should keep an eye on if we have to pay attention to only one of the things that's happening in the economy? What should we pay attention to?
3: I pay attention to consumer spending, which is 70% of the economy. And it's one of the weirdest things right now. Consumers are more pessimistic than they've ever been. This is in surveys going back 60 years. But consumers, so far at least, are increasing their spending at um, a decent pace, and that disconnect is of all of the weird things in the economy to me um the weirdest.
0: You mentioned something when you talked to Ezra Klein that I think is in this same basket which was that people were spending in cr- crazy areas like hobbies that 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 their behavior was their purchasing behavior was not just on everyday stuff but also in weird uh, hobbies that might not be part of the central part of their life is do you is that what you're talking about here and also when retail sales fall is that a good thing to look at? consistent with the point you just made.
3: Yeah. So what you see is incredibly elevated spending on just about every type of goods with the exception of cars, which no one can get, but everything other than cars, people are still spending 10, 15, 20% more than normal. Um, But then service spending continues to increase every month. People are traveling more, people are going to restaurants more. Um, and the like. And so that combination is continuing to prop consumer spending up. Um, Your second question implicitly brought up another weird thing in the economy right now. Normally, you're rooting for the more of anything good, the better. But there is such a thing as too much of a good thing right now. Uh, I think if policymakers could choose economic growth over the next year of 2.7% or 1.7%, I think most of them would be a lot happier with 1.7% than 2.7, which is something that rarely... Uh, would be the case. The concern is that right now the economy is overheating, and that's driving up inflation. And it's pretty generally acknowledged that you're going to need at least somewhat slower growth to cool things down so that some of the price pressures diminish. And so if the economy grew at 2.7% over the next year, um, probably at that same time, you'd have higher rising inflation. If it grew at 1.7, you'd at least have a fighting shot at that inflation rate coming down. So just an overheating economy, too much growth can make the problem worse.
1: Why, why is it, do you think, maybe you don't know, that people are so slap happy in their spending? I mean, part is they got a lot of money
3: uh, in, in three rounds of checks in 2020 and 2021. They spent a year and a half spending much, much less than normal. And that both gives you some extra money. But also some people are taking their first vacation that they've taken in two and a half years. I mean, some people have been traveling for the last, you know, for for a while now, but some people it's their first one. And so that both extra saving and pent-up demand has meant the American consumer is just, yeah, sort of detached from from all of the swirl uh, going around us.
2: So, I mean, we see these rate hikes from the Fed this week, this effort to cool the economy down. I fastened uh, in our reading on a point that Derek Thompson made in The Atlantic about how to have um, unemployment so low and inflation so high that it's in the past when that same dynamic has been in place, it's been very hard to avoid a recession. What do you make of the moves the Fed is making? Do you feel like this is kind of hopeless that we're staring into a recession?
3: The Fed doesn't have absolute control over anything. They can control sort of balances of risks. And right now, they are taking steps that increase the risk of a recession in the next year. They are not trying to, you know, minimize that chance. They are increasing that risk. They are also increasing the chances inflation comes down uh, over the next year. And it's the first time in um, decades, really, that they've been in that position where they are sort of willing to risk a recession. Um, Now, the rate hikes we've seen so far, um, interest rates aren't that high. Um, at 1.5 to 1.75. They're expected to get somewhat high. They're expected to rise to about four. But even that um, isn't crazy high. But it's just been this disc, you know, this sort of whiplash effect of going from zero forever to, oh, my God, it might be, you know, two or even four numbers that used to be pretty normal, but no one is used to anymore.
1: Give the 30 second explanation for GAFS listeners. When the Fed raises interest rates, how does that potentially choke off inflation and raise unemployment
3: yeah when interest rates go up it makes it harder for people to get mortgages so they buy fewer houses and there's less construction jobs it makes it harder for businesses to borrow money to expand and so they hire fewer workers and all of that means less jobs than you'd otherwise have and less wage and price pressure um, than you'd otherwise have. And listening to that explanation in that bare form, um, that's not pretty. Um, But the reason they're doing it is they think the alternative is even less pretty.
2: It seems like the obvious political implications of this are very bad for the Biden administration and the Democrats. Is that your view or is there some other way of looking at it?
3: If you're asking me to use a crystal ball to look at the next five months, that's really easy. Um, Nothing is going to dramatically change in the economy, in inflation, in any of these dynamics. People are going to go to the polls pretty grumpy this November. Um, If you're asking two years and five months from now, I'd be pretty worried about this set of data. But look, Ronald Reagan had incredibly high inflation. He had a really deep recession and by the time he was running for re-election, the economy was roaring out of it and people thought it was morning in America. Um, so it's not too late or impossible for the recession to come almost sooner and be coming out of it by the time of the next election.
1: Because I don't own any crypto and because I'm old and mean, I've been enjoying some of these stories about the contraction in the crypto economy, about how like one crypto product went into a death spiral how the crypto bank celsius is paralyzed and i know that i'm wrong to be gleeful about this but is the crypto economy useful or good and what should we make of the kind of convulsion in it right now
3: Look, David, my my thinking on this isn't that different from yours. I try to be nuanced, balanced, and fair on most economic topics. I find that absolutely impossible to do on crypto. Um, And if you wanted to rationalize your your horrible, horrible feelings, um, you're actually a really good person to... You know, the alternative was crypto went up to thirty trillion dollars um and then back to one and a half trillion. So people saved twenty-eight trillion dollars of losses they would have had if this bubble got much, much worse before it popped.
1: But explain it. Why well why why are you? You're like a world-class economist. Why why are you as judge spending and vindictive exactly? <laughs>
3: Great. Um no, I mean there actually is some truth to that. I mean, part of you know, when stocks go down they you know in the middle of a bubble, the bubble could have gotten worse and the crash could have been um, even larger. Um, the thing about crypto is it doesn't really have any use. It's just an asset class. It's not really a way to pay for things or to store value and all of that. And as an asset class, it has some really bad properties, which is that its inherent value is zero because there's an unlimited supply of it you know, not an unlimited supply of Bitcoin, there's some algorithm that limits that, um, but an unlimited supply of cryptocurrencies, because you can always invent new ones. And so in some sense, you know, it's an asset whose fundamental value is zero and whose side effects are quite bad. Um, and, you know, I'm glad we're seeing a reckoning. I wish it had happened sooner, but it's better than it happening later. How...
0: Much murkier is the current economic moment than the normal murkiness that poly- policymakers have to deal with all the time in in thinking about how things are going to work. And is that does that murkiness affect the way or the humility we should have about policy and policy outcomes?
3: It's much murkier. You know, we tend to treat Bernanke in the financial crisis, Powell in the COVID crisis, as enormous heroes. A lot of that's justified. They did great things to get us out of those crises, but in some ways it's easy when you know that you just need to put the pedal to the metal and you need to be creative about like what exactly that means because it's not just as simple as pressing one pedal, but like you're just pushing everything in one direction. Now, you have these cross currents you're trying to balance. These cross currents are just enormous. Inflation the highest in 40 years, consumers the most pessimistic in 60 years. It's just a much harder job now than it was for Bernanke in the crisis or Powell um, in the
1: crisis. Jason Furman is professor of economics at Harvard. Jason, thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's a big day here in Gabland because there is a new Emily Bazelon, opus long in gestation about one of the most contentious issues on the planet. Her New York times magazine article, the battle over gender therapy, more teenagers than ever are seeking transitions, but the medical community that treats them is deeply divided about why and what to do to help them. Oh boy, Emily, this is a complicated issue. It does not lend itself to tweets. So I hope you're not tweeting, at least not much. So, seems that lots of children at different ages are expressing the belief or knowledge that they are not the gender they've been assigned and more of more of this is happening in the US than has happened ever before what is happening when those children start to express that
2: well it depends a lot what age they are and what kind of history they uh, have but you know, in general, in the United States right now, major medical organizations support what's called gender-affirming care. And one thing that was interesting about this piece was just trying to come up with a quick description or definition of what that is. I actually think it's kind of impossible. But at base, it's the idea that you're supporting kids when um, they come out as transgender or non-binary or another gender identity and that you're trying to embrace them. And then the question becomes, what follows from that? So for younger children at this point, there's pretty much a consensus that if they express an interest in changing their name and pronouns in addition to, you know, changing the way that they dress or um, have their hair cut, that you support that. That's called social transition. And the much thornier questions arise for teenagers when these questions come up about whether you should suppress puberty as a way of um, you know, allowing them not to go through developmental changes that they may really not want. And then later on, but also for teenagers, whether they should take um, gender-affirming hormone treatments that change their secondary sex characteristics. So the kind of spine of my piece is a new set of recommendations that are coming out soon from the World Professional Association for Transgender Health. It's called WPATH for short. It's been existence since 1979. And it's become an organization that has um, lots of transgender and non-binary people in leadership roles and helping to write these new guidelines. And at the same time, the drafting process for this adolescent chapter, this separate chapter about teenagers, is... Um, was really hard because the people writing it, um, they're all gender-affirming providers. They included a transgender psychologist. And they're confronting these questions about why the population of teenagers is rising and whether, when to say that medical treatments are appropriate, what kind of guardrails to set in place for kids and families. And these are just really tricky questions. There's some evidence that the... um, authors of the chapter relied on, but then there's also just some unknowns. And that's really the the extremely difficult topic I was trying to write about.
0: Because unless you can figure out what the why is, you can't figure out how to provide the necessary gender affirming care at the right time and in the right amplitude. And history is a little confused, right? Because the the, the kinds of people who are feeling like they aren't the gender they were assigned at birth is different from that in the past, right?
2: Yeah. So, you know, when you look at and talk about transgender adults, it's really important to recognize that the benefits of being able to medically transition are very well established and the rates of regret are very low. And so what we know from that historical population is these are people who Really, really often had to struggle a great deal to get the kinds of medical interventions they wanted, and they thrive. This is like something there's lots of evidence for. When you have a big rise specific to the adolescent population, and you're not totally sure exactly why that's all happening, you might wonder whether those teenagers are the same as the adults from the past. And I, that's like one of the really hard questions here. So we know that visibility among four transgender people, you know, in culture and popular media has risen a lot. And that is certainly one reason why we're seeing this rise. And it's super liberating for a lot of kids and teenagers. And they're also being Um, playful and creative and um, just freer about gender expression than I think our generation and previous ones have been. But the authors of this adolescent chapter for WPATH were also mentioning and, um, and I think acknowledging that there's a potential role here for social influence. And what they mean by that is, you know, peer to peer, internet. And then that raises a question for a lot of kids. Again, those can be really valuable ways of learning about a different way of being in the world. And then there are some kids, and I talked to some of them, for whom, you know, they're kind of on a quest. And it's not clear that in the long run, this is going to be the answer for them. And that's totally fine. But it does make complica- more complicated these questions of medical interventions.
1: So, Emily, you're writing this piece. And again, I would advise you not to look on Twitter. Um, but it's at a time when there's this enormous right-wing assault almost- over almost all services to transgender people and especially to transgender children. And, and of course, most grotesquely, this, this push to criminalize some of the treatment of children and put child welfare investigators on the path of parents who are allowing therapy for their children. Um, and so there is this notion that how can you question the treatment of children at a moment when the Malevolent baleful forces are are trying to criminalize what children are expressing Feels like some of the doctors and psychologists who you're writing about who are seeking the well-being of children, but who? Maybe are more more um, They're more cautious about therapy are being lumped in with these conservative attacks on trans people
2: Yeah, it's super unfortunate. I mean when people are trying to ban care How do you talk about improving it? Right. Because for the people writing this chapter, these psychologists, psychiatrists, medical doctors to acknowledge any kind of weakness or uncertainty in the evidence is to kind of open up the door to this right wing assault on the very care they provide. And that is a real conundrum for them. Um, It was also something I thought a lot about as a journalist. Um, But I am a journalist in the end. That is my job. This is a hugely newsworthy story. I had exclusive access to the final version of the standards of care coming out from WPATH. Um, In a lot of ways, that drove the timing of the story. So what I did was to try to weave in the political backdrop, mostly from the point of view of the people writing the chapter so that you could see the kind of pressure that was exerting on them and how hard it is to do science when you're in this um, incredibly hostile political environment. So one of the um, psychiatrists in my piece, Scott Leibowitz, he works in Ohio And on the one hand, he's writing this chapter and trying to sound certain notes of caution, especially about having a kind of comprehensive diagnostic assessment before medical intervention. And he's getting a fair amount of, um, you know, flack, the whole chapter is, from uh, some other gender-affirming providers and activists. And yet at the same time, there's a bill to ban what he does in Ohio, and he is personally being absolutely pilloried in front of the Ohio legislature. And that's just a really hard position to be in.
0: Emily, can you give us a sense of some of the tensions involved? Um, so, for example, one thing that came through clearly and was was um, helpful in your piece was that for those who don't believe that they, that they they were assigned with the correct gender at birth, their body, as it develops becomes, um, you know, a a constant reminder of their uncomfortableness. And so there's a reason to have um, interventions because of the the psychological damage of growing older. And that that's the reason to move quickly on on some people. And yet, on the other hand, you're talking about medical, in some cases, um, choices that that have their own lasting um, effects that you don't want to rush into. So it's so I guess if you could just Kind of tee, tee up the tension that people in of good faith forget the political conflict for a moment. The people of good faith, the tension they're trying to work out in this.
2: Yeah, I mean, I talked to lots of parents and lots of teenagers, and you know, from the teenagers' point of view, some of them embrace caution, like they want to make sure themselves. They both were very aware of the physical changes they were undergoing, but also had some sense, that, like yeah, I want to make sure that I really want this, and I want to trust my parents um, and the therapist I'm talking to to help me through that process. And, like, you know, it's sort of the nature of adolescence to be super impatient. Um, And and I heard a lot of that, but I also heard some kids um, who really were able to think through the long-term consequences and um, wanting to make sure to trust their own decision-making. I think for parents, uh, you know, you they have to consent to treatments um, for kids who are under the age of 18, and mostly they were trying to kind of pick their way through a landscape where it was pretty difficult to figure out what kind of gender-affirming provider was what and whether they would find themselves with a therapist who would, you know, expect them to immediately... Um, embrace not just a child coming out as trans, but every medical intervention the child might want, or whether there was a sense of like, okay, let's take a moment here. Let's like process this all together. Um, I talked to one super wise transgender herself, therapist in Texas, who said that when a kid in a family comes out as trans, it's actually going to be a transition and a big event for everybody in the family. And it's really important to remember that. Um, And that's unfortunately a quote that didn't make it into my piece. I interviewed way too many people. But that really stuck with me, this idea that um, your family is part of what's happening. And we have really um, well-established research that for LGBT kids, the most important thing is family support, that that is just like hugely protective for them for all kinds of otherwise, um, you know outcomes that they are at higher risk for so I think there's just a lot of still to be worked out about how to make sure that you know kids are being listened to are being embraced or being told that they're loved no matter what and and that there's like this path for more kids um, which has really been important and beneficial and and at the same time that there's also a way to acknowledge that, Parents who have questions and hesitations are not necessarily being bigoted or transphobic. They're just like trying to figure stuff out.
1: Emily, I just super admire you. I know you've been working on this piece for a long time and just been just thinking so hard about it and working so hard about it. And you've talked to every single person in the world, apparently 14 times to do it. So congratulations. People should check out Emily's story in the New York Times Magazine. Uh, It's already out online the battle over gender therapy.
0: As I was reading it, I was in awe of the amount of work and the care at every turn. It's really, really amazing.
2: Thank you, guys. I really appreciate it.
1: Let's go to cocktail chatter. When you, John Dickerson, are having a post-January 6th commission cocktail with Ann Dickerson in Washington, D.C. without me, what are you going to be chattering to Ann Dickerson and not to me about?
0: So there's a lot of news going on. So we, we might have missed that the FDA, FDA advisory uh, committee unanimously recommended um, that at least two Moderna and Pfizer uh, vaccines for COVID are now available for those under five, which is the last age group um, or the, the last cohort um, that didn't yet have access to va- vaccination. So it may even be possible by the time you read this, but certainly probably next week, that um, the rollout could start to vaccinate kids under five, which uh, I was walking by a playground the other day here in Washington, and all the kids were outside in the playground going over the jungle gyms, and all of them were masked. So presumably in a couple of weeks, that would no longer be the case. Emily, what's
1: your chatter?
2: I was really interested this week in a piece I read in The Nation by Joan Walsh called The Backlash Against Sex Ed. And it's about, I mean, I, I've gotten totally interested in sex education, which I think is really changing a lot. And, you know, there are these challenges to it. And Joan is tr- is writing about people on the right who are trying to take their kids out of sex ed programs. Um, she starts off in Massachusetts, um, and then moves on to Florida. And it's just really, I think <laughs> this issue, it just feels like it is so ripe for conflict to me. And I thought she did a really interesting job of trying to understand where conservatives are coming from on it.
1: My chatter, a t- little twofold chatter. One, just uh, a note to Gabfest listeners. I do this tour of a secret Civil War fort hidden deep in Rock Creek Park, on airbnb it's i do it through airbnb and it's been sold out for months and months and months but i just added a few dates um and often I'll, most of the people who go on this tour are Gapfest listeners if you've wanted to come explore the secret fort with me in rock creek park i do it on weekends uh, i added a couple of summer dates and a, i think a couple of fall dates so you could look for exploring a secret fort on airbnb or you can email me at davidplotz at gmail.com uh and i will send you a link to it um that's number one number two Last week, I talked about whether Queen Elizabeth, Elizabeth Windsor, had, was the person who had held the same job for the longest of any longest time of any person in history. And this prompted an outpouring of incredible responses from you guys. And I wanted to run through some of the incredible responses that you sent about other people who have held jobs for a really long time. So there's a guy named Walter Orthman in Brazil. Uh, Walter Orthman born in 1922 he's 100 years old at 15 he got a job as a salesman a sales manager and he was got he got i guess he was didn't become a sales manager until he was 16 he has been a sales manager for 84 years at the same company in brazil that's incredible so this guy 84 years sales manager in brazil walter orthman congratulations here at home in the u.s there's a california woman named may lee Who, as of 2020, she was 100 years old and worked as a financial analyst for the state of California at 100, and she'd been doing this job for 77 years. She had been doing it since before since since World War II. Amazing! Congratulations! That is crazy. It's crazy. Okay, we still haven't gotten there. We haven't still haven't gotten there. There's a uh, Filipino tattooer. A woman who was born in 1917, so she's 105, if she's still alive. The last thing I have about her is a couple of years old. Um, She started tattooing when she was about 12 years old, I think it is, 13 years old. She's been tattooing for 90 years. That has been her job. Okay, now, the winner, no longer alive, is is a barber named Anthony Mancinelli. Anthony Mancinelli Mancinelli was a barber in upstate New York. He started being a barber when he was 12, back during the presidency of Warren Harding in 1923. He retired at age 108 a few weeks before he died. He was a barber in New York for 96 years.
2: That's so amazing. I love that. It's Amazing.
1: Amazing. Amazing. So, listeners, thank you so much for your additions to my, my, uh, my offhand reference to Elizabeth Windsor. And uh, really appreciate it. You've also sent us really good listener chatters. Please keep them coming to us by emailing us at, at com or tweeting them to us at at slategabfest. And this week's listener chatter comes from Andrew Scarpelli.
4: My listener chatter this week, while drinking delicious craft brews from one of the numerous breweries around the great sea of Chicago, is about the Biodesign Challenge. While most discussions of many of the crises facing the natural world seems to be completely full of doom and gloom, the Biodesign Challenge, which happens at the end of June every year, is a wonderful opportunity to see biology and design as the place where solutions can be found. The Biodesign Challenge asks students to learn about both art and design as well as biology and science to look for creative ways to solve real-world problems with sustainable technologies. It's a great way to see and hear how everyone can get involved in pitching ideas that can help us tackle mounting problems like climate change, the accumulation of plastics and microplastics, invasive species, and so many more in a way that is fun and accessible. The summit is streamed every year, and this year the event is happening the entirety of the week of June 20th. It's a great way to learn about dire problems and hear some creative and hopeful solutions from potentially unlikely sources. I'm going to be rooting for my team of students from Chicago, but there are participants from all over the world, and each will have an amazing project to share with you to enlighten and give you hope.
1: That is our show for today. The GabFest is produced by Shana Roth. Our researcher back after a multi-state move is Bridget Dunlap. Welcome back, Bridget. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants, Get Better, John Flansburg. Ben Richmond is Senior Director for Podcast Operations. Alicia Montgomery is the Executive Producer of Slate Podcasts. Please follow us on Twitter at SlateGabFest and tweet chatter to us there. Please join us for our live show on June 29th in Washington, D.C. at 6th and I. Slate.com slash Gaffest live to get tickets for Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson and David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? Summer. Summer is a coming in. So we're gonna talk a little bit about our summer, uh, our summer consumption our summer culture consumption today it's always great t- to get some recommendations from the gang and uh to hear about things we should be watching and things we should be reading because the summer is a time uh for watching and reading and lounging and reading um anyone want to start emily you always have a lot of good stuff
2: a lot i feel like i never have a lot of anything i am really looking forward to reading Uh, A debut novel called The Immortal King Rao, which is by Wahini Vara, who I worked with a little bit at The New York Times magazine, but mostly have just come to super admire as um, a writer and thinker. And this novel sounds like it's one of those kind of sprawling, future-esque epics. Um, It sounds great. Yeah, it totally sounds up your alley, David.
1: What was that noise, David? That was me. (laughs)
2: Salivating.
1: Salivating gasping for breath <laughs> hyperventilating yeah that's the top of my list uh, okay that's a good start john anything from you i have for a long time had cloud cuckoo land
0: on my uh, my uh, stack um this is by anthony dor who wrote all the light we cannot see i mean he wrote other things too but that was the last book of his i wrote uh, read and um saving it
1: for that was just a snippet from our slate plus conversation if you want to hear the whole conversation Go to slate.com slash plus to become a member today.